Hi, everybody. My name is Donnie Daniels from the Old Patrolman and Old and Pearl Inspector from Session 88. And you're listening to the Old Patrol Podcast. Ain't no pro like the Old Patrol. Honor first and honor always. Greetings and welcome to Episode 5 of the Old Patrol HQ Podcast. I'm your host, Gil Maza. As a Border Patrol agent for over 23 years now, I have always admired and respected our rich, action-packed, and colorful heritage. My journeymen were hardcore, kick-ass alien catchers, and they passed on their knowledge, experience, and all our bad habits onto the next generation. Today we'll be talking with the legendary shadow catcher himself, law enforcement agent officer Hippolito Acosta retired district director of the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service, who has led an exemplary and amazing career in immigration enforcement, but got his humble beginnings in the United States Border Patrol. He was in session 109 in Los Fresnos, Texas. You don't want to miss this one. Ain't no patrol like the old patrol. Honor first. Greetings to all you old patrollers out there and supporters of the Mean Green. Thank you for joining us for episode 5 of the Old Patrol HQ podcast. As you heard in my intro, we have the honor and privilege of having retired district director of the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service, Hippolito Acosta, as our guest today. He entered on duty in Marfa, Texas on October 14, 1975, and attended the Border Patrol Academy at Los Fresnos, Texas with the 109th session. He graduated fourth in a class of 112 and stayed in Marfa until he reported to Chicago, Illinois as a criminal investigator on October in 1976 after completing his probationary training in Marfa. He worked in Chicago from 1976 to 1982 where we will hear of some epic adventures. In 1982, the agency transferred him from Chicago to El Paso because of a threat against his life and his family. In 1985, he joined the El Paso Sector Anti-Smuggling Unit. In 1987, he transferred to Brownsville, Texas as the first supervisory special agent with the McAllen Sector Anti-Smuggling Unit. In 1989, he transferred to Manila, Philippines where he became the officer in charge there but continued with enforcement operations including, get this, once following a group from Manila to Los Angeles. In 1995, he transferred to Monterey, Mexico as the officer in charge. In 1996, he transferred to Ciudad Juarez also as the OIC. In 1999, he transferred to Mexico City as the district director. Finally, in 2002, he transferred to Houston as deputy district director and then retired as district director under the United States Citizenship and Immigration Service. Now, he's an accomplished author and speaker with three books, and you can Google his interviews on most of the major outlets out there and see his interviews, and um, they call on him for a lot of information and his views on immigration and a um, variety of things like that. Good morning, sir, and welcome to the Old Patrol HQ podcast. Good morning, Gil. Thank you. Uh, I'm so glad and honored to have you on our podcast and looking forward to hear uh, about all your adventures and experiences uh, starting with the Border Patrol and moving on. And that's where I'd like to begin. Uh, people could get a lot of your um, background and information based on uh, your great books. Uh, I've read through most of your first book and uh, gotten a lot of background. But tell us a little bit 
about how you, what led you and what inspired you to join the Border Patrol in the first place. Excellent. Well, I, I want to start out by uh, saying I'm, uh, my parents and I and my family are originally from West Texas. Uh, I grew up in a small town by the name of Redford, Texas, uh, which I affectionately call a, a suburb of Presidio, Texas. Uh, and I, I, I've known you, I know you've had a, at least one other officer that uh, from the patrol who was teaching in Presidio. Yes. Uh, and after I had already come into the patrol, but uh, he gave you a description of some of the things that we were on the Presidio. But uh, that's, that's where I grew up. I went to school there. And one of the things about growing up in Redford, which is right along the Rio Grande River, uh, we had a, a small presence of war patrol agents in Presidio. And although they, they did not have a lot of community participation in our, our small town in, in Redford, uh, we always looked up uh, to them. Certainly my family, uh, my brothers and I, my sisters, we had a, a lot of respect for law enforcement. And we'd see the, the U.S. Border Patrol uh, when, when they went through our town or did farm and ranch check. And so there was a lot of, there was some interaction. And I, I looked up to it. Uh, similarly, when I went into the U.S. Navy, I spent four years. Uh, I joined when I was 17, and uh, three of those years were spent in San Diego, where I had occasions to run into the Border Patrol agents, uh, and I would have discussions with them about joining the, the, the Border Patrol. And, uh, you know, so it was, it was always always in my in my mind. But one of the things that happened, Gil, when I was uh, in, the, in the Navy, I, I enjoyed the Navy, and I had, I had intended to make the, the Navy a, a career. Mm-hmm. So when I when I left the Navy, I went back, uh, and my mom was living in Marshall, Texas, uh, at the time, along with my brothers and sisters. And uh, I started going to school at Sol Ross State University in Alpine, a great little school in West Texas, uh, with the intention of getting my degree and returning active duty as a as a Navy officer. And during that period of time, I stayed with the U.S. Naval Reserves uh, as I was going to school. Well, one day I went to the post office and I and I saw a former Border Patrol pilot who was a uniform. He was an assistant chief by the name of Charlie Henderson, mm-hmm. and uh, we we struck up a conversation. And uh, you know, he told me about his flying experience in the military and uh, the Border Patrol. And as we were getting to, ready to leave, he said, uh, "You know, young man, you would make a great Border Patrol agent. Why don't you apply?" <laughs> and uh, I said, "You know, that's a fantastic idea." And Back then, you could actually apply with a form that they had at the post office so for, for the exam. So I took that form and I filled it out, and I sent it in. And a few weeks later, uh, I got notified that I had been scheduled for an exam in El Paso. And so uh, this was in uh, early 1975. Mm-hmm. So I, I went and took the exam in El Paso. I, uh, I didn't know how I had done, but a few months later, uh, I think about three months later, I got notification that I had been scheduled for an interview. Uh, in, in El Paso itself. So I, again, I drove 165, 170 miles from Marfa to El Paso to one my Border Patrol interview. And I, uh, I, I will tell you, it was a rather interesting interview because one, the, uh, the gentleman, the officer that was heading up, uh, the panel was, uh, a, an individual by the name of Jim Reed. And, uh, they used to call him Jungle Jim Reed. He spent his entire career in the, uh, uh, in Marine Corps and the Marine Corps Reserves, uh, it was quite uh, quite a uh, legendary guy in those particular areas, but uh, okay. uh, Chief Reed, Chief Reed actually was a very hard interviewer, and I never forget. 
that, that, that's how I started my, my career. They, they selected me for the position, and uh, a few months later, I got notification. I think my former city got notification that I had been assigned to Marfa, Marfa Station, Marfa Sector in Marfa, and uh, I was already living in Marfa. I had just got married, and uh, well, it was uh, it was a great start for the career back in 1975. Okay, and uh, by the way, just as a side note, um, when you read your book, you get the you get to f find out how you met your beautiful wife, uh, Terry, right? And uh, uh, and, and uh, you were living in Marfa. So tell me what you first got to the station there in Marfa. What was the work like there? Well, it was quite an experience, to be honest with you, in terms of first reporting in. Because let me, let me just share that it turns out that the individual who interviewed in El Paso right, in, on the oil board was none other than Jungle Jim Reed was a deputy chief. Ah. And, uh, and uh, you know, he had scared the wits out of me during the uh, during my interview. And uh, come to find out, he's the one that received us when, when we got into Marfa. And uh, <laughs> my my uh, my new colleagues there, my new train the trainees that reported in with me were actually five outsiders. I think four from New York and one from somewhere in the East Coast, and myself, a local guy, with uh, reported into to uh, to the station. Mm -hmm. And I have to share this with you. Uh, one of the individuals from New York had a little bit of a long hair. He wore sandals. Uh, a great guy. <laughs> and uh, uh, when we walked in, sat down. Uh, Deputy Chief Reed said, "I I want gentlemen gentlemen to know one thing. There's at least one of you." Who's not going to make it? Mm. And I will, uh, I will share with you that uh, if you do want to make it, I suggest that you go to the barber shop and cut your hair as short or shorter than mine. He was bald. <laughs> uh, so, but we had a local barber shop that was run by a vitamin by the name of Richard Subiante, who gave haircuts to all the border patrol agents back then. So they took us in a patrol vehicle to go get haircuts. Uh, with uh, with Richie, and you can be assured, my hair was very short by the time I came back to the station. I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> so, but the work, the work itself uh, was uh, was great. Uh, you know, Marfa back then was a uh, it was a sector headquarters, uh, but we had Station One, and I believe, if I remember correctly, and I could be off on a few numbers, uh, we had I think we only had about twenty six agents. For Station One in Marfa, that's uh, I think Big Ben, Big, Big Ben Sector, which it's called now, is probably the largest in terms of uh, uh, size mm -hmm. uh, in the border patrol. I'm, I'm not too sure about that, but I, I I've heard that before. So it kind of gives you an idea that we were pretty thin yeah. uh, in in what in what we did. My first uh, my first uh, duty when I reported to Marfa in in February, and it gets pretty cold up there, was. Uh, uh, worked in the checkpoint south of uh, Alpine uh, from midnight to eight with uh, with Dennis World, uh, a, a wonderful uh, journeyman agent who was there at the time. So, which, uh, I, I thought it was interesting. I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed the, the work. Uh, I had I enjoyed the uh, I had enjoyed the uh, academy in in those fresnos when I reported in. I had a great time, and I, I will share this with you. I. I don't think you can do this nowadays. But when I reported it to the uh, to the to the uh, to the training academy, I uh, about a month later I rented a small apartment and took my new wife to the academy. She stayed with me until I graduated. Ah, okay. By the way, um, this podcast enjoys everything 
after the words, I don't think you can do this now, but just so you know. <laughs> so um, what, what, what did the daily work consist of for you? Because uh, you, you spent a year, basically a year in MARFA until your probationary training ended, correct? And so, uh, pretty much, uh, what 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 did the rest of the work consist of? And what, what, what was your you know like your daily duties? And what was the focus of the station? What was the management like at the time? Well, you know, it was uh, certainly you know the, the deputy chief, uh, like I said, had been uh, I think a, a marine colonel. So you know the discipline that he had going on at the station. We had the uh, I know I know that back then trainees. Uh, were to be seen and not to be heard, you know, clean the car, uh, make sure you get everything ready and be there early, which by the way, I was not, and I was, uh, I, I was forever getting into a little bit of a hassle because I'm sure 15 minutes before the shift started, <laughs> the trainees were expected to report in one hour before. Uh, so that's a, that's a story that they still have around Marshall, by the way. Of course, the way they say it nowadays was that I was an hour late, but it was actually 15 minutes before the station, before the, the shift. But we, you know, we had the uh, train check in Valentine, Texas. We had a lot of, uh, uh, you call it farm and ranch check, uh, but mostly we have we have a lot of ranches up in that area, and so we, we did some of that. And uh, you know, of course, the, the checkpoint we had we had, we actually had two checkpoints: uh, one south of Marfa and one south of Alpine. Uh, although Alpine had their own uh, station, they were probably about eight or ten agents at the time, Border Patrol agents. So. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, it was pretty diversified. We, we, we had a good time with, uh, you know, uh, catch a little bit of dope uh, on, on, the, on, on the road. I don't think it was as, uh, as bad as uh, it, got on, it got later on. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we did a lot of tracking, which uh, I found very interesting. Uh, you know, the, it was not a sector where you had a huge amount of uh, interdictions every day, where you have arrests every day, but again, uh, I always thought that our presence was to deter any criminal activity because deterring is just as successful uh, as apprehending it when he comes in. That, that was my thought. Uh-huh. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, interesting that you said that about the coming in early and getting prepared because, you know, I've, I've been in agents since 1996. And in the first couple of years of my initial probationary time and things like that, I also, our, our FTOs, our journeymen also expected us to come in early enough to have the rides ready, to have their weapons already checked out and put in the ride, uh, so that when they walked out of the muster, we just got in the ride and left. So a lot of that didn't change. I mean, nowadays, I think that has kind of gone by the wayside, but at least even, at, even in 1996, when I came in, that was still something that was, was very important and part of the culture of the patrol. Certainly, I, I think uh, we were certainly very regimented. I uh, I have a lot of familiarity familiarity of what's going on right now because uh, you know, my uh, I've had two sons in the board patrol, one of them is still still with the patrol. So I see some of that. I think there, obviously there's some changes uh, uh, over the years, but I but those are the days that I recall. It was uh, regimented, and uh, you know we had the uh, we, I, I thought we had good uh, good discipline. We had a couple. Of, you know you're always going to find a some uh, difficult uh, employees in any particular area are different, but I think for the most part, I was uh, I found it uh, great working in Marpa. Developed a lot of great friendships. Uh, you know, 
Tom, that, uh, you know, many friendships that, that remain to this day. Yes. Now, now, before we move on to the next segment of, of your, uh, you know, of your career, was there any good uh, war stories or cheeseman out of Marfa before we move on? Oh, I think there's some great uh, war stories. You know, we have we have some legendary trackers in, in, in Marfa, and, and I've, uh, I've, I've said this story before in, in, in the open, so the people involved uh, will, will remember the... Uh, yeah, some of the things that happened, we, we, we had, uh, we, we made it fun. Marvel was not as active as El Paso or whatever, but like I said before, we, we, we made it fun. Uh, we had good friendships, but I think some of the funny stories are, we always playing jokes on each other as well. <laughs> I, because of the great trackers that we had, uh, you know, the, uh, trainees, again, uh, were to be seen and not heard. And, uh, one day I came into the station up in, uh, not the station, the restaurant up in, uh, in Valentine, and, uh, uh, everybody had uh, already cut the, the drag, and uh, for those that might not be aware, is that they had already gone uh, through the road, so we checked to see if there's any tracks, and everybody had reported that there was no tracks. Mm-hmm. Well, Ben, ben DeLuca, who retired as an uh in Marfa, and I found a couple of tracks over the, in one of the areas that had been dragged already by one of our tractors. And uh, I said, hey, we got two tracks from this particular area. And... Uh, the other agent said, no, you don't. And I said, no, I do. <laughs> so, long, long story short, you wouldn't believe me. And uh, they wouldn't go out there and check it out. I said, well, I'm, I'm going to take care of that. So I, then I went over to the area where he had tracked. And Ben DeLuca and I took out some old shoes from uh, the back of the vehicle that had been left there. I think four sets of shoes. And we made tracks uh, <laughs> on that track that one of the senior agents had already cut. And then we went up three miles to did the same thing. <laughs> and then we went three more miles. So if you, as you all know, you cut the drag and then you go north until you can't find them anymore. So then we came back and said, yeah, we, we found this track on this area. And they said, no, it didn't happen. So next thing you know, all the units go up there. Sure enough, there's some fresh tracks. And, you know, and I, <laughs> being the smart aleck that I was, I said, oh, this, this, this track, I can smell them. They're, they're no more than two or three hours old. <laughs> and uh, so... Uh, Senior, we used to call them seniors at the time, said, well, we were going to put everybody on it. So they go up north, check the first three miles, and they find the track, and then we jump to the other side. And, uh, of course, after the next three miles, you can't find the track anymore. So long story short, they said, well, they have to be laid in here somewhere. <laughs> well, we couldn't find them. And the senior called the, the, the sector to send the airplane. And I said, oh, oh my God, <laughs> get it out of hand. So, yeah. so we... we we stay there, and by this time it's two o'clock, it's three o'clock, and uh, the senior won't let any of us go home until we find that group of four. Well, there was that, there was no group of four. The airplane had to go back and refuel, and uh, so I told Ben to look at the band. I said, I, I can't do this. I got to be honest with him. Uh, I'm going to go tell him that I did it. <laughs> and and Ben said, you can do that, but you're going to get fired. You live here. I'm from New York. I can't afford to go back. <laughs> so, you know, the, uh, I don't know if that's a good story to tell, you know, but I, I remember that, uh, quite a bit. And there were, there were some other ones, uh, you know, I, one time I responded with Ben DeLuca again to a sensor hit where there was a lot of dope and we were working by ourselves and they were told us, they were instructed by our senior at that time not to, not to respond to that sensor hit because of, the, of no backup and rightfully so. But being foolish 
straight east and green that we were, uh, yeah. we kept calling on the ra- telling him on the radio that we could not understand what he was saying. <laughs> and I, I hit, I hit them with a truck that was assigned and tore off the transmission on it. So I thought that was going to be the end of my career, but uh, here I am. Well, that's one of the things that um, that we like like the most uh, in the old patrol is talking about our history, heritage, and legacy. But with all the shenanigans that go along the way, right? And uh, there has always been that, hasn't there? Oh yes, I think uh, every generation has their uh, you know their their way of coping, their way of dealing, and certainly yeah. making uh, making life fun. And I'm sure that the uh, while maybe a lot of the uh, Tactics have changed. Uh, I think that there's. Uh, I think our agents probably have as much fun as uh, as we did, but maybe in a different way. Yeah, well, I did. I do notice that um, border patrol agents are willing to do a lot of overtime for the sake of a practical joke on somebody else. You know, oh, with, without a, with, with, without a doubt, I think uh, I think it goes with the territory. It's probably the, you know. I think uh, I think if you were to go through each generation, I'm sure you're going to find. Uh, you're going to find all kinds of stories. As a matter of fact, I was listening to one of your podcasts on Mr. Daniels, and I had to laugh because uh, I, I I noticed, of course, that he, his session was the 88th session, and mine was 109, which is, uh, you know, something like, uh, what, 31 sessions later. Mm-hmm. And he, ha- he had just as much fun talking about the things that they did as I have about talking about the things that we did uh, as I was growing up in, in the service. Yes. Now... Um, in reading your book, I got the I got the impression that while you thoroughly enjoyed get, coming into the patrol, going through all those things, having this fun, working the traffic, that somehow you know it, it just wasn't enough. In other words, it, you know you you were catching the people and you were catching the the aliens and you were sending them back. A lot of them coming back. You, you didn't weren't able to prosecute uh, uh, many smugglers to your satisfaction, and so you needed you decided you were going to make a change, right? Uh, indeed, indeed. Uh, you know, I think uh, uh, and, and thank you for saying that because my first year of off, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the work. But I, but I wanted, I yearned for more action. Uh, certainly, the limitations we had there was because of the, uh, you know, uh, ge- terrain, the geography, and I enjoyed, I was, uh, always enjoyed the, the sections of, of law. And I found it frustrating that uh, I wasn't getting what I thought was a more excitement for him in doing those kind of things. And I thought I had more to contribute. So, but I, I'll, I'll share a story with you that actually really put in perspective uh, I, I write in my in my first book the shadow catcher uh, I write that there was a group I was working actually censors uh, down by Candelaria which is uh, southwest of, uh, of Marfa mm-hmm. right north of the border and I had been overlooking a, a, a little store that was out in the country that, that was there for generations and, and I saw that a truck pulled up and uh, you know people get out and go into the, into the truck and it was I found it very unusual but having grown in that region, I uh, I felt there was something they were up to something. Actually, I thought it might be dope. But uh, a little while after spotting it, uh, I had run a record check on it, uh, and I saw people running towards it and jumping in the back, uh, in the bed of the truck. So I I, I think I counted like uh, twelve. So I, I had my first smuggling case where I was out there working by myself, where I was not supposed to be working any kind of traffic other than working on sensors. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't pass it up. And it was on a Saturday, and I was the only one on duty at the time. 
in, in that particular area. Uh, and uh, I called it into sector, and the first thing that came back was uh, we had a, one of our agents work in dispatch, a guy by the book, uh, Gene Henderson, who we, uh, we used to call The Rock. Uh, so Gene calls me up, and he lets me know that the, uh, the senior had said for me not to follow the load, uh, because, again, I was by myself. Well, I, I, I couldn't pass it up, uh, and uh, I followed it, and we got close to Marfa, and uh, they they spotted me and went off the road, and I had 12 bodies flying all over the place. <laughs> and, oh, it scared the heck out of me, but then we had a great pilot by Johnny Williams, who still lives in Marfa and still flies after many years, uh, privately. So uh, he came up with the airplane, and uh, we ended up uh, finding all 12, and we filed charges on the smuggler. And, and that was the first case that I had done in Marfa. And uh, although I was counseled about stopping the vehicles, I was exhilarated by having actually prosecuted somebody that was taking advantage of the system, uh, about the human beings coming into the country. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I was, uh, it, it gave me the, uh, it gave me the, uh, that little push to seek elsewhere. And right about that time, you know, they announced criminal investigator positions throughout the United States, uh, Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles. And I had never given Chicago a thought except one of our other border patrol agents had gone up there. And I, I put in for Chicago. Uh, but I also want to say something about that, about the criminal investigative positions. Back then, if you were a border patrol agent and you put in for positions as a criminal investigator throughout the United States, the district offices liked that. They loved it because mm-hmm. they would get an agent who had already been trained. They had experience on the border, generally spoke very good Spanish. And uh, so it, they, they, they would go more with, with border patrol agents for the criminal investigative positions than local hires who, yeah. in many cases, had to learn a system completely from the beginning. So uh, it was a, a great, great percentage of criminal investigators throughout the country, whether Los Angeles, San Francisco, San Jose, Chicago, had been in the Border Patrol yes. and were selected from the Border Patrol. And I was one of those uh, agents that, that got selected early in my career for the district office in Chicago. Uh-huh. And you know, the, the funny thing is that the, both um, William Metcalf and Charles Kothman that I interviewed for the and and Donnie Daniels, I think as well. They all uh, started out in the patrol, but like you said, ended up getting offers uh, because agencies like um, criminal investigations were drawing border patrol away to work for them. Oh, with, without a doubt, and 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 that's not just uh, criminal investigations. Uh, customs uh, was would heavily uh, go into the ranks of border patrol, especially when they had good locations. Uh, uh, DEA. When uh, when DEA uh, first uh, was formed, uh, you had a a quite a number uh, of agents that went into the uh, in, into the, into that agency. So you know it was, it was a fertile ground for recruiting good law enforcement officers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, poachers. They do. They love to take a bunch of ours of, of our guys with them because the border patrol did offer some excellent training then, uh, even even to today, right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, without a doubt. So, sir, so so then uh, you ended up putting in for that position and you took it, and so you you left to Chicago in '76. Correct. That's correct. 
That's correct. Uh-huh. I reported to Chicago exactly one year later after, after having started uh, with the Border Patrol in October of 1976. Well, then it looks like it didn't take long before you uh, ended up volunteering for a certain um, for a certain operation. Can you tell us about that? Uh, certainly. I had uh, I, uh, I've been in Chicago for about two months, uh, November and December, um, and uh, you know my functions have been reported to the uh, to the office, and we did what back then was called area control. Uh, just basically doing uh, uh, operations uh, to you know go after illegal aliens in factories or wherever. Uh, and, and those type of operations. So I work I worked that the first two months, but then I heard through the grapevine. Uh, I uh, let me back up just a little bit. Uh, uh-huh. We had some great agents in Chicago that have been with the El Paso Sector Border Patrol, including Gary Rennick, Roland Chase, Brian Perriman, but they were all senior officers uh, when, I, when I reported in. Uh, you have to remember that I think I was 23 years old mm-hmm. at, at the time. <laughs> but through the grapevine, I heard that they had a big operation that was headed by Roland Chase. Uh, targeting a major, the biggest counterfeiter that they have in, in Chicago. And uh, I heard a little bit of the stories of like, what they were doing, uh, but it was, it was kind of uh, kept uh, pretty mum. And uh, I, so one day I, I went up to uh, Roland Chase, a very quiet guy, fantastic friend to this day. And uh, I told him, I said, hey, uh, I want to go undercover on, on the case that you're working on, on, the, on Newton Van Drunen. And uh, he just kind of looked at me and he said, how, how do you know about that? And I, I told him a little bit. And he says, well, I'll get back to you. And uh, I figured that I'm a trainee, they're not going to bother. So uh, long story short, in January, after I had reported in Chicago, Roland came over to me and, and he said, hey, you feel what I work at the cover? And I said, awesome. I had never done an undercover case in my life. I had, we had no training back then for working undercover. Uh, I had been there for two months. But ultimately, I recruited an individual that I had arrested to become an informant by El Salvador. And he became a fantastic informant. I needed a place to stay because Newton in, in my view, was the most notorious counterfeiter that ever was encountered by the U.S. Immigration Service. Mm-hmm. And Drunen would have reportedly killed a couple of uh, aliens in, in Matamoros when he was doing human smuggling, uh, became a master counterfeiter, uh, spoke excellent Spanish. Uh, but a- anyway, he was, a, he was a huge target of both INS and the FBI there in Chicago. And uh, so I got, uh, I got Salvador to allow me to stay with him and four other Mexicans that did not know that I was an immigration agent. Uh, so I lived with them. Uh, we lived in the basement apartment. And uh, I ultimately convinced Newton Van Drunen to allow me to work for him as a distributor. Even though Van Drunen already had something like uh, more than 40 distributors throughout the country. And generally would not allow anybody to get close to him. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I felt the story, came up with the story. And... Uh, Ultimately, uh, in, in February of 1976, we, uh, or 77, we arrested Van Drunen at that little apartment where I was staying with the five Mexicans. And, you know, it became legendary in Chicago because they had been after Van Drunen for such a long period of time. And we found, we found his printed presses and we found, uh, uh, you know, thousands of counterfeit documents. And 
Mr. Van Doonen got a 12-year prison sentence uh, off, of those, uh, uh, off of those charges. So it's pretty interesting, and I think uh, later on maybe we can talk about Mr. Van Doonen because he certainly did not do those 12 years. Well, one of the things you, you you told me was that he went to prison for alien smuggling, and that's actually where he learned to become a counterfeiter. <laughs> that's where he got his training. That's Amazing. Correct. When he when he got convicted the first time around for for alien smuggling, uh, you know, they uh, I guess he looked for a trade and he found a good one because he he was a fantastic counterfeiter for uh, money, uh, documents, uh, credentials. Uh, he, he was just a. a uh, Master Counterfeiter, I often say that Newton Van Drunen, if, uh, if you see the movie, catch me if you can, uh, they talk about the counterfeiter, I, I would say that he had nothing on Newton Van Drunen. Wow. Now, I got to ask you, what was it like? In other words, you know about this guy, you know he's dangerous, and you're walking into a room play acting to convince this guy that you're legitimately who you say you are and get hired by him to work for him. What was that like? Well, initially, without having had any training, Bill, you might laugh on this because <laughs> uh, I, I showed up in January, there's a, a, a snowstorm and knocked on his door and uh, they, they got two floors and he comes he come down and opens the door and looks at me. And this guy, to me, looked even bigger that's what he really was. I mean, this guy weighed like 250, 260 pounds, uh, and he's looking at me down from a couple of steps, and he says in Spanish, what do you want? <laughs> and I looked, I looked at him, and I said, Mr. Vendron, and I've heard that you're the best counterfeiter in the business, and I'm the best street vendor. And then I realized that is the most stupid thing anybody could say <laughs> when you come in, because this, this is this is not a movie. And I, I, I sat there, and he looked at me like, I don't believe this. Uh, you know, can you imagine showing up at a mafioso's house? Yeah. Because that, that's what he was considered, and saying, okay, I want to work for you. But And and, and some, somebody that had reportedly killed a couple of people. Uh, so he looked at me, and he didn't say anything, and just walked back upstairs but let the door open. So I said, well, it's now or never. I only had one person for backup, and he couldn't see where I was at. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so I took it as an invitation. I went upstairs, and uh, all during that time, and I'm trying to collect myself, <laughs> but I go in, and he's got a little table, uh, and he's got, a, he's got a Mexican wife, and he looks at me, and he says, I don't know who the heck you are, but you're either an FBI snitch or something, something to that effect. You're either an immigration agent or, or a, a snitch for immigration or, or the FBI. Oh. And I, and I look at him, and, and he has said a snitch for immigration, so I was not a snitch for immigration. I was an immigration agent. That's the way I justified it. Yeah. And I was not working, and I had not been sent by the FBI. So I looked at him, and, and I said, uh, Sir, you know, my, my mother, who is still alive, I am neither an immigration snitch, and I was not sent here by the FBI. <laughs> so he told the truth. <laughs> and it, 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 it was the truth. I was a lie to him. And so he, uh, he tells me to sit down, and he had, uh, he had a small uh, bottle of whiskey and, and some coffee, and I saw him pour some, uh, some whiskey to his coffee, so I did it myself. And uh, it kind of caught my nerves, but, you know, it's... Uh, you know, now, nowadays we have uh, 
situations where you have a transmitter, you have social media, you have pictures going out, you have a, a live stream that, that you're doing. We didn't have that back then. Yes. Uh, it, was, uh, it was me and Dylan Bedroom sitting across the table from each other. And basically sizing each other out just based on what you were saying and doing right then and there. That's correct. Wow. That's correct. And, uh, you know, the, and the, you know, the thing is, when, after we left, uh, you know, I stayed there for a good period of time. And, and after I was getting ready to leave, he said, I'm not going to commit yourself, but I will check out your story. And one of the things that Roland Chamberlain partner had done, he had uh, gotten one of the, the HR director at a major company there to put me on their payroll because we knew Ben Truman had some vendors uh, in there. So believe it or not, he verified that. And then I had told him where I was staying in this apartment with uh, these uh, Mexicans. And uh, I gave him the address. And uh, about a week later, I, I moved in the following day to, to, to the place there. No, and uh, let me tell you something about my, 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 my wife. She was 17 years old at the time in Chicago. We had no, 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 no family up there. We just got in there. Uh, lived on, on the ninth floor uh, of an apartment building, and uh, I moved out. And she, and we had a young son, uh, and I moved out to, to stay with these guys uh, while I waited for Mr. Van And So I think, uh, I mean, that was the gist of how we started our, our undercover career. And I, and I say that because, you know, can you imagine what you went through? And yes, she supported what I did completely. And uh, I, I ended up going with those guys, and sometimes I would sneak out at 2 o'clock in the morning and go see my wife and my baby and then just and get back to the house. Ah, wow. So she was a trooper. She, you know, she supported you in, in, through that whole, the, all those operations, late hours, days, probably without seeing you, all kinds of things like that. No, without a doubt. Uh, it's, it's been a, uh, you know, it, it's been a joint venture. Uh, adventure, if, if you would, and, and we're blessed by it. And, sir, was there ever a time throughout the entire process until you made the arrest with Van Drunen that you ever thought you had been found out or they or he had figured you out? Oh, yes. I, I'm glad you mentioned that. I had forgotten about that part. Uh, when I was staying with the uh, when I was staying with the five Mexicans, uh, obviously, it was a small two-bedroom place that we, that we shared. Uh, and I, I used one of the beds. A couple of the guys... Did not take a liking to me. One because there was more individuals inside the house, and and they couldn't figure out why I would never go to work. So, so, so there was a little bit of a uh, uh, a awareness about about me. But one day, I, I had uh, foolishly left my little bag that I had, where I had my badge and I believe my gun, uh, inside the room, and one of the guys went and found it. Oh, uh, and this and, and this is if we're getting close to making the arrest of Van Drunen. Now, you know, by that time, the tension was heavy because uh, Van Drunen had taken me to his wing. Uh, he wanted me to sell more documents uh, and uh, he would show up unannounced and scare the heck out of these guys. So uh, when they, when uh, I, one of the Mexicans, when it was Gustavo, found my badge and my, and my gun, uh, you know, he alerted the other guys. And luckily, Salvador was able to uh, you know, to find out that this had happened and he warned me and ultimately I had no choice but to confront all the other guys and tell them that yes, I, I was an immigration agent and uh, I, I needed their help. And they were willing? They were. They were either going to go home that day 
or, uh, or or they could stay and enjoy an adventure and uh, and become our witnesses. So it took a little bit of convincing. It wasn't uh, <laughs> uh, it, it wasn't easy by 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 any stretch because at the first point, all of them said we're ready to go back home. We're not, we don't want to participate. We're afraid of this guy, and you know we, we don't want to be placed in that position. So you know I think uh, and. I admire that they said that. They, uh, I, I also think back now, and I could have easily been jumped by all four of them, and uh, you know, to not, not make it out of there. But uh, nevertheless, uh, Salvador and I had a strong talk with them. Um, you know, we uh, we had our, had our discussions. Uh, it, was, it was a lot of tension, but ultimately, it was uh, it was pitched up, and uh, I think we ended up drinking a six pack of beer afterwards. Ah, nice. Nice. Nothing. Not, not, nothing takes down tensions than a, than, you know, than a, than, than a six pack of beer, right? <laughs> without, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Now, sir, in, in 1980, a movie called Borderline with Charles Bronson came out, which I consider the probably the most ideal representation of the Border Patrol in any movie ever made. There's a lot of other good movies out there, but that was I thought was the best one. And the tagline on that movie was. A U.S. Border Patrol officer poses as an illegal alien to catch a killer, smuggling laborers from Mexico. Now, this was a movie plot made in Hollywood. And as far as all of us knew, nobody had ever done that before. But this actually was not fiction for you, was it? No, it, was, it wasn't fiction in that regard. Uh, I think, let, let me just say that uh, before I get into the story, I know that many of our agents along the border uh, work to Asia just to go to Mexico and not necessarily to work undercover, but to, ha uh, to have a business relationship with uh, other law enforcement officers. But I think uh, one of the things that I'm not aware of was anybody having gone into Mexico and become uh, part of the group uh, of being an, uh, an illegal alien. And uh, so when you talk about that story borderline so going into, into, into Mexico, uh, you know, I had already done that. Two years before, <laughs> uh, and actually, actually infiltrated a large. She uh, uh, was smuggling ring uh, out of Juarez, uh, working El Paso in Chicago, and that I'm aware of. That was the first time, uh, and only one of two times where an agent is going to Mexico by himself, gets smuggled all the way into Chicago on the border, and uh, and not have any backup. Um, along the way or, or anywhere and I think uh, and I'm proud to say that I'm I'm the agent who has done it twice. Wow. Wow. So tell me how did this come about? How did this this whole idea come about? I hope you enjoyed part one of part one of the two episodes dedicated to an interview with Hippolito Acosta. I know I'm absolutely floored at his experiences. Before I close, I'd like to give a shout out to my friend and compadre Gary Brugman of the Gary Brugman Podcast, who has inspired this podcast and walked me through all the craziness involved. Go listen to his show wherever you listen to podcasts and visit his website at www.garybrugman.com and bounce off some guardrails and prepare to be entertained. Come browse through the Old Patrol HQ store for some amazing products that you can wear proudly honoring the history, heritage, and legacy of the patrol with a few shenanigans along the way. Ain't no patrol like the Old Patrol. Honor first. Honor always. Now go listen to part two.